Good to see you all this morning. And a good-looking crew here. Um, I'm excited that uh, we're continuing on in the Unity of Faith series. If you've uh, been with us so far, we've made it. This is the sixth week. If you're visiting with us today, uh, you've met us halfway. We're walking through a 12-week series on the foundational truths of Christianity, what, what it is that we believe foundationally, the things we don't negotiate on. And, uh, and so today we're going to be talking about uh, the human nature and talking about why the world is the way it is. And uh, in short, we're going to be looking at the desperate situation of man uh, and the fact that uh, apart from Jesus rescuing us, we're sunk. And uh, so that's where we're going to end today, but we've got a, a long, hard conversation to have before we get there. Um, but so we're going we're gonna to be in Genesis 1 to get started, looking at what God created as very good together. And so if you've got a Bible and want to turn there, go ahead and do that. If you um, don't have a Bible, we put black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. Those are there for you, so feel free to snag one of those. Uh, we'll get started in Genesis 1 in just a second. Um, so we're going to be looking today at human nature. What is inherently human uh, for each one of us? We know as we look around just this room, there's a lot of diversity in mankind, different appearances, different sizes and shapes and personalities, strengths and weaknesses. What we're talking about today, though, is what is inherently true about all of us foundationally, okay? And so uh, to get started, we're going to be in Genesis 1, but I want to just bring up something that I think that, that will help us get the conversation started. I, I think when we look at the world by and large, we read newspaper headings or you go onto whatever your news browser is and you read the headlines, I think you would have a hard time uh, arguing with the fact that there's something wrong with our world, right? I mean, we get these reminders, not, not just daily, but moment by moment, newsflash, breaking news, something else went wrong in humanity. And so this idea that something's wrong, I feel like by and large, all of us would agree with on some level. Now, the challenge for us is to take what we believe and what we see in the world and realize that there's actually something wrong inside of each one of us. It's one thing to look at the world and say, something wrong with the world. It's another thing altogether to say, you know what? There's something wrong in me too. And, uh, and so, so throughout human history, uh, this idea that, that human nature is, is broken somehow is not a new concept. Matter of fact, the, uh, the poet of the, the 18th century, Alexander Pope, wrote it poetically, and he said, to err is human and to forgive is divine very poetic way to describe what we're going to be talking about today, that, that human nature, there's something broken and wrong with human nature that plays out in the form of error. Some are huge errors, right? Some make headlines. Some never make headlines at all. Some stay hidden even within our own hearts and things that we hide and deception and temptation. And, and so this idea that, that to mess up is human, right? And we use a modern-day version of that all the time. We, we say things like, well, I mean, we're all human, right? We're all human, so we all make mistakes, so what is it actually that we mean by that? And how does the Bible show us and explain to us why the world is the way it is? And then what does the Bible say about what is inside of each one of us that needs to be fixed? And so that's where we're going today. Exciting conversation to be had. I can see the anticipation on your eyes. Uh, we're going to start with what's good. We'll start with the good news. We're going to end with the good news. Fair? So here's where we start. Genesis 1. This is day 6 of creation. The closure of every day, God has declared good. Okay? Now, we're going to see in just a minute, he's going to declare this day very good. What I want to start with is, is understanding in our minds. You and I are prone to call things good according to our own standard. That is not necessarily the standard of God. When God calls something very good, he's saying from his perspective, it's perfect. Okay, Perfect. It's exactly the way I want it and intend for it to be. It's very good. So we come to Genesis 1, the creation of man and, and woman, and we, we find our purpose. We find a, a lot about our duty and what God has created us to do. And so we pick this up in verse 26 with these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And this is uh, the first message in this series was on the Trinitarian God, how God refers to himself in plurality here. And we looked all throughout the Bible how um, God was active in creation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all active in creation. So God's referring to himself in plurality, and he creates mankind in a plurality, male and female, to reflect his image. Look at what he says. And he says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And verse 31 says, 
And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Okay, so at this point uh, in, in human history, Adam and Eve are created, and God calls them good. Now, what happens when we move to the next chapter in your Bible, Genesis 2, is really a, a zoomed-in snapshot of day 6. It's not another day of creation. It's the author slowing down to say, okay, let me tell you a little bit more about day 6, how it unfolded, so you can understand more about the nature of mankind. So in chapter 2, we read these words, and this is starting in verse 15. It says this, The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. It's really important here. The, the word work here means to cultivate, to grow things, to, to bring about life and goodness. The word here to keep literally means to guard and protect. And so man was given this duty by God to be a protector. Now Eve isn't created yet. Adam was the one created to be the protector, the guarder of all that God puts in place and calls very good. Adam, you protect it. You keep it that way. So he's been given a duty. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And then into verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So God has given Adam identity. Your role is to bear my image, to reflect my perfect glory and holiness on earth. He's given Adam a duty. You protect and you keep it. What I've called very good, Adam, you protect and keep very good. And he's also given Adam a command. He said, Adam, you're free to eat. This garden is for you. There's one command. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're not to eat from it. And so he's issued a command. Then the rest of verse 17 says this, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And God issues a warning. So Adam has an identity, he has a duty, he has a command, and he's been warned. And this is before Eve has been created. Now, let's start with this baseline understanding of what God created in mankind. He created man as good according to his standard. At this point, Adam doesn't have the knowledge of good and evil. He only has the knowledge of good. He looks at the world around him, and he sees things that are very good, not according to his standard, but according to God's standard. So he has a conscious awareness of what good looks like and what good is. And God says, if you eat from this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, right? So the idea that your, your consciousness will be expanded. You'll be able to see what, what is both good and not good or evil. And the day that you do that, you will experience death. And that's the warning. God created human nature to serve as a perfect reflection of God's glory and holiness in the world. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, isn't it? I mean, we catch snapshots of who God is in people, right? We see compassion displayed for the least of these in somebody, and we say, oh, that looks, that looks like God. We might see sacrificial generosity where somebody sacrifices a great deal on behalf of somebody else, and it reminds us of the character of God. We see these snapshots of who God is, but it's hard for us to imagine a man, or a woman for that matter, who perfectly, right, perfectly, from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed, perfectly reflect God's character. Yet this is how we were created, Adam and Eve, as very good. Now something happens in the next chapter, Genesis 3, and that's where we're going next. Something happens. The enemy of God shows up, call him Satan, call him the devil. He shows up in the form of a certain serpent here in this narrative. And verse 1 of Genesis 3 describes the serpent this way. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. The word crafty here means cunning, intelligent, smart. So set apart from beasts or other animals, this particular being had a craftiness about him, very intelligent, right? And so the, the expectation, if the enemy is going to come against God's creation, he would come in craftiness and, and a sense of intelligence. And he does. Look at what he does with God's words. And so the serpent says to the woman, still in verse 1, did God actually say? Now, that's almost always a loaded question, right? Did God actually say? So what we can expect here, more than likely, he's going to refer to something God said, and as God's enemy, he's going to be prone to twist it. So he asked the question to Eve, 
did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, what's the answer to that? No, that's not what God said, is it? But you see where he's already beginning to spin truth into a lie, right? Eve, all she knows is what Adam shared with her as a protector and keeper. We're not supposed to eat from this one or we will die. And the serpent just came up and said what? Did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees? You see how he's setting her up? Now, the answer to that is no, he didn't say that. He said, don't eat from that one. But that's not how she responds. In verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's true, isn't it? Eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, pointing to a specific tree. Now, she's right on right here, isn't she? From all we can tell, she's saying what is true back to the enemy of God. Here's what happens next, though. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, what was true just got twisted, didn't it? Is that what God said? Did he tell Adam, if you touch it, you will die? See, there, the serpent came in very crafty, set her up and began to twist truth, and now Eve has bought into the lie, and the truth has become twisted in her own mind as well. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, so you'll be able to see more about the world. Now, that's close to what we understand God said, right? This is the, tra- the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. There will be expansion of consciousness to, Adam, you won't only know what is good, you'll actually begin to see what's not good. And so the serpent responds in verse 5, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Right? So he's now playing again on the words of God. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of it, of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. All right, ladies, this wasn't just Eve acting alone. Adam, the one who was given the duty as the protector, was actually with her. Right? So we, if we didn't know that part, we could say, well, maybe Adam told her the wrong thing. The joker was there. Right? The one who had the duty from God, the command from God, he was held responsible to protect what is good, is sitting here listening to this conversation go down, listening to truth become lie, and not protecting his wife from it. But not only that, he himself participates. He also ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now something happened. Remember, God issued a warning. Something's going to happen. If you eat of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's going to be an expansion of your understanding of the world. You're going to not only just see what is good, you're going to see what is not good, what is evil. And ultimately, it's going to lead to death. In verse 7, it begins. The eyes of both were opened. Open to what? A knowledge of what's evil now. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, What we see in this early response is really symbolic of human nature's response by and large. So think about this. Before Genesis 3, Adam and Eve didn't wear clothes. Okay? And when they looked at one another, all they saw was what was good about that. Right? Husbands, wives, committed marriage, there's something good about that. It's supposed to be desirable. It's supposed to be good. But now, all of a sudden, they're not only just aware of what's good, they're now aware of what's not good about that. How that can be twisted and perverted and used for harm. What God created to be a blessing. We were talking about this in life group last night. Truly an act of worship. Man and woman sharing intimacy on this level. Glorifying God, reflecting His glory. What God created very good has now been twisted into something that is not good. And many of you here today have experienced a version of that, a perversion, if you will, of what God created really good, very good in sexuality. And Adam and Eve were all of a sudden aware. Now, this transcended everything in life, right? To the idea of possessions, what they saw, what was very good. Now they're they're beginning to understand jealousy and, and, and selfishness and covetousness, and their eyes are open to a world of not good. But ultimately what God promised is what? You will surely die. 
we continue in the, uh, in the story, what happens is God comes to um, Adam. Guys, who does he come to? Adam. Why? Because he was the one that was supposed to be the protector in this, in this story. So God comes to Adam and says, Adam, where, where are you? And where do we find Adam? He's hiding. Hiding from God. God confronts him, says to Adam, hey, hey, nice clothes. Who told you you were naked? See what God's asking? Who brought you this awareness of a, of a larger consciousness of now what is not good? And God knows what happened. So what does Adam do? Okay, so now he's exposed. So first thing he does, he hides. Now he's been called on the carpet, so he's been exposed. Then what does he do? Well, just like any good man would do, right? He shifts the blame to her. He says, well, wait, 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 God, I'll tell you what happened. Remember that command that you gave me? Well, the woman that you gave me, God, so really you've got some fault in this too. The woman you gave me, she's the one who gave me the fruit to eat. So you're right. I, I did something I shouldn't have done, but just so we're clear, you had a part, God, and she had a part. He, he, he shifts blame, right? He tries to hide from the fact that he has disobeyed God. Now, this is going to tell us some things about human nature that are inherently true. First and foremost, here's what we need to understand about human nature. We are hardwired inherently after Adam, in, in, in the same pattern as Adam, when we disobey to feel shame. And when we feel shame, every one of us is prone to hide it on some level. Right? So what we just saw displayed in Genesis 3 is actually transcendent of all human nature from that point going forward. Before there was a knowledge of what is not good, there was no need to hide, was there? There's no shame, no sense of guilt, no sense of embarrassment. Adam and Eve weren't embarrassed. But now there's this conscious awareness of what things look like that used to be very good that have now been twisted and perverted to be not good. And so what Adam did, every person in this room has done on some level. We try to hide. We take a step back. We ask, how can I cover this up? How can I pretend like it didn't happen? How can I clear my record? How can I, right? And so we, 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 we form these fig leaves and try to hide what is true. So the death that Adam experienced, really it's layers of death if you want to get into it, just looking at what happened. Um, first and foremost, we see a death of his, his actual purpose, a death of the image of God in him. The image of God, this perfect holy image of God has been exchanged now for the image of betrayal. So when Adam, he doesn't have a mirror, but when he looks maybe at his reflection in still water, he no longer sees the image of God. What he sees is betrayal. When he sees himself, he's reminded of his own betrayal of God. When he looks at his wife, same thing. Rather than seeing the image of God beautifully reflected in his radiant bride, he sees betrayal. He sees deception. And so this image of God has died and been exchanged for an image of betrayal. Not only that, there's another layer to it. How about relationships in general? A death of relationships. The, what happened immediately after the fall? Adam and Eve hid from God. God had to come looking for Adam. There was, a, there was a death in this relationship with God. Now man wanted to hide from God rather than walking in, in fellowship and transparency. Man doesn't, right, want that and hides. What do we see next? We see Adam and Eve turn on each other. And so there's a death of their horizontal relationships, too. I mean, once Adam's pinned down, he sells her out, right? That's not good. That's not good. And we see this. I mean, can you imagine, ladies, Eve, your husband sells you out in front of God like that? Oh, we're going to talk later. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're going to talk. Right? And so now there's a brokenness in the horizontal relationship. It plays out in chapter 4 of Genesis 2, the two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Right? And in, in, in a moment of jealousy and rage, one murders the other. And so we see something broken, permanently broken in the nature of mankind. We see a broken and a fallen human condition from that day forward. I'm going to go to Romans 5 now. This is in the New Testament if you want to turn there. We're going to go to verse 12. We're going to look at the words of Paul as he, in one verse... Romans 5.12 sums up all that we've talked about so far. So the Apostle Paul is sitting down writing a church in the New Testament. He's writing a letter to describe what we just went through in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And here's what he says in verse 12. He says, Therefore, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's he talking about? Adam. Eve was there too, right? But who did sin come through? Adam. Holding, God holding Adam responsible ultimately. As sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. So, how, so God said, here's the warning. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to experience a, a death, layers of death. Brokenness and fellowship, brokenness and identity, brokenness, and ultimately leading to what? A physical death, right? This unpredictable, most, more often than not, it's experienced through pain and suffering. You're going to experience that, Adam. It's coming. So you have these waves of death coming. And so Paul is saying, in the same way that sin entered the world through one man, and with sin came with it death, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, just a really subtle hint in this text. The idea that all sin, what Paul just did, I want to make sure you're aware of this. Paul just put you and me in the garden. The way this is put together in the Greek language, he's talking about the past tense event of the fall, more than likely, and he's saying, we all, we all have participated in that. And it's affected us all. And so when we look at the world, then we begin to get an explanation of the brokenness we see around us, right? We begin to see some sort of explanation for how people can be so evil, so bent towards causing harm and pain towards others. We also get an explanation for why suffering happens to seemingly innocent people, situations that seem to be beyond their control, and they didn't do anything to deserve. And what we see is a broken, fallen world overshadowed by this curse of sin and death that God warned against. And God said, Adam, this is what's going to happen. If you leave your post and you neglect your duty, here's what's going to happen to the world. They're going to know good, and they're going to know evil, and they're going to experience death. Now, we're going to look at... uh, an example from King David. Let's do David first, and then I'll do me next, okay? See, here's the trouble with this. I think on some level we can all go, yeah, I can see that. The world looks broken, right? I'm on board with that. But the trouble is when we begin to look internally at ourselves, we're still prone like Adam and Eve to do what? To hide and not own our part in it, right? Not own our brokenness and our bent towards what is evil. We look at um, King David. We'll let him serve as an example. Uh, If you know the story of King David, he was a man after God's own heart. He was anointed by the prophet to lead God's people. The nation of Israel had a fantastic track record as a leader, and then he messed up. And if you know the story, um, this guy David, whenever uh, it was the season when kings were supposed to be off at war and his men were off fighting battles, he stayed behind, which was out of his character. He normally was there with his men, fighting with them, suffering with them, and he stayed behind. Not only did he stay behind, so he left his post. He sees a beautiful woman bathing, and he says, I think I'll have her. I mean, I'm the king, right? Who's going to deny me? Bring her to me. And so he has this relationship, a physical, sexual relationship with Bathsheba. So what God created to be good is distorted and not good in this scenario because Bathsheba is not only not his wife, she's also married to somebody else, right? So what God had created to be good, very good, clearly is being perverted and twisted in this scenario. And then, and then, like Adam, once David is found out, his good friend comes to him and calls him out. You've got to love a good friend who will call you out, right, in, in the midst of sin. And so David gets called out by a good friend who says, you have sinned. And at that moment, he owns it. But before he owns it, he, like Adam, tries to hide it. He actually sends orders to have Bathsheba's husband killed. So not only did he have an affair with this woman, get her pregnant, he also murdered her husband. And his good friend calls him out on it. Now, after he's been called out, right, just like God called out Adam on the carpet, he now is in a place where he's going to own it. And we see this beautiful prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. This is where David writes out what's happening in his heart as he's turning his heart before the Lord in humility and owning his mistakes and calling it out. There's a couple phrases I want to point out from Psalm 51. Um, The first is this. Early on in the psalm, David makes this confession. He says, God against you and you alone have I sinned. Now we hear that, we're almost offended by that, aren't we? Wait a second. What about, what about Bathsheba's offense? What about her husband and his family? Aren't other people involved in this? 
What, what David is doing first and foremost is the right thing. He's acknowledging, first and foremost, God, I've offended you. Now, what I've done is wrong in a lot of people's eyes, but first and foremost, God, I have rebelled against you and your command here. And I have acted out. What I inherited from Adam, I have now acted upon. Now, I want you to see something else, though, because David says something else in verse 5. This is Psalm 51.5. He says, not only, not only have I messed up big here, God, let me just, while we're having an honest conversation, let me just own some more stuff. And so rather than going back through a list, here's what he says. Verse 5, surely I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me, or some translations, in the womb. And so what David is doing right now is not necessarily making an excuse, right? Well, it's, it's natural to mess up, God. What he's saying is, God, I want to own it all. And I don't want to go through a list of picking and choosing because I'll miss some. Let's go back to the start. God, I have been sinful since my first breath. Now, let's think about that. On one hand, as parents, right, we love our little babies and we see so much innocence in our children and it breaks our heart every time innocence seems to be stolen from them, whether it's in the first day of school or second grade or sixth grade. Every time they're hurt and crushed and they're exposed to the knowledge of what's not good, our hearts break for them, right? Because they're growing in this knowledge of what's not good. We want to protect them from that. But if we're really honest, on the other hand, we don't have to teach our children to be bent towards sin, do we? Let me just give you an example from my own life. Rather than picking on my boys, I pick on them all the time. One of these days they're going to be old enough to start putting a whoop on me, so I'm going to stop making fun of them. Let me just tell you about something I participated in when I was five years old. Kindergarten, okay, five years old. Um, I lived out in the country in Weatherford, and we had a, a neighbor who lived next to us, the, the Hilburn family. And the Hilburns were, um, from what I remember, an awesome family, very godly. I would be out playing on Sunday afternoons, you know, just playing in the dirt with my cars, and I would see them come home from church all dressed up. They would go in, have lunch together. Sometimes they would invite me over. I'd watch them pray before meals. I was kind of exposed to Christianity, I would say, first and foremost, through their example to me. Um, at times, I can look back now and see why um, the, uh, my friend David Hilburn, his parents didn't let him play with me all the time. There were times where he just wasn't available. Uh, I, I get that. I was that kid, right? And so uh, on one of those occasions, um, I remember very vividly something that took place. I want to share it with you. It was one of those times where either David wasn't allowed to play with me or it was nap time or something. Uh, he wasn't allowed to come out and play with me. I knock on the door, Mr. and Mrs. Hilburn. They even taught me how to ask the right way. You know, may David come out and play. They taught me how to ask the right way because I would just, you know, whatever. And so, um, and so can David come out and play? No, he's not available right now, um, maybe later this afternoon. And so I devised a scheme. I knew which bedroom was David's. And so I knew he was probably in his bedroom. I devised a scheme to go to his bedroom, meet him at the window. Because they didn't say, don't go talk to him through the window. So I'm like, okay, well, he just can't come outside. You can talk to the window. So we, I knocked on the window. He came to the window. And so he opened the window. I'm like, hey, we can, we can hang out through the window. And I remember as we're talking, he kind of run out of things to do through a window, right? And so he's like, well, let me show you some of my stuff. He shows me his trophies. And he shows me his piggy bank. I'll never forget this. Vividly, I remember. He flips it over, opens the little, you know, the round thing on the bottom, and shows me how much cash he had in there. I still have a picture of that in my mind. And evidently, he had, as he did his chores, he earned his allowance, and he saved his money. Well, I don't know if it was his mom called him out of the room, but for some reason, he left the room for a moment. And at five years old, I reached in and grabbed a $20 bill, stuck it in my pocket. And here's how I know how shame works. Immediately, I felt guilty. And you know how I know that? Because immediately, I began to construct a story in my head, should I get caught. Immediately. I knew I needed to get away from the situation. I left. I don't remember if he came back and I said bye, if I even waited that long. I, knew I needed to get out of Dodge, away from the mistake I just made. So I left with that $20, and all the way back home, Two minutes that it took to get me back into the house, I constructed a story. And I was so overwhelmed with shame that I went straight to my mom and I told her the story. And so I began to tell my mom how I found this $20 bill out by the road. And, and at first, she was excited for me. Well, that is fantastic. Well, let's save it. Let's talk about all the things that you could buy with it. But here's the thing. I didn't know how to leave well enough alone, right? Because I still felt shame, so I kept on. 
And the longer I went with the story about how somebody drove by and the window was down and the wind just sucked it out and flew and I caught it, you know, just made up this story, the more she began to catch on, right, parents? This sounds a little bit fabricated. And so now she's getting a little suspicious here, as she should, that I'm not presenting the truth. I'm presenting her what is not true. And so she's wise enough to know. She picks up the phone, calls the Hilburn family. Just want to check here. Jason found a $20 bill. I just want to see if it could have belonged to you or your family. Because she knows where I just come from. Sure enough, David's mom checked his piggy bank, and he was missing a $20 bill. My mom made me go over to them and take that $20 bill and own it. How dare her? She made me do the thing, the very thing that I did not want to do. She made me own my sin. It was a wise move on my part. I learned something that day. You see, just at, at a very young age, I wasn't even, we didn't even have television back then. We had black and white, UHF, VHF. There was no, you know, like, I, was, I didn't see that example on TV. I hadn't seen that example in my parents. I inherently knew that when I saw something that was desirable to the eyes, like, like Adam and Eve, that I wanted to take it. And as soon as I took it, I knew I was wrong. My eyes had been open, right? More aware. And what did I do? I immediately wanted to cover it up and, and hide the shame that I felt. I'm telling you, my heart was throbbing on that walk back to the Hilburn house. I was scared of his parents, scared of what they were going to do. There's just one example, right? Well, let's talk about what we mean by and what we don't mean by inherently human nature bent towards evil. So here's what we mean. We don't mean that people aren't born with a conscience. Matter of fact, I would argue that's probably what happened more than likely at the fall. Man's cognitive recognition was expanded now. He was not just cognizant of what is good. Now he's cognizant of what is also not good, right? And so it's not that we're born without a conscience. We are. We have a knowledge of what is good and not good. It's not good to take things that belong to somebody else and then lie about it. We, we just know that. Nobody has to teach us that. We know that's not good. We know we wouldn't want that to happen to us. And something inside of us tells us that's not, it's not good. So we have a conscience, right? A sense of bearings. Of, and most of us are trying hard to navigate those situations and learn from our mistakes, right? And to more often than not try to choose what is good. So we don't mean that we don't have some sense of bearings. We also don't mean that people in general are as evil as they could be. As, as evil as I've been in my life, I could have been worse. So we don't mean that every human being is running as rampant as they possibly could be towards evil. Okay? We see examples of that in humanity. We see that and we cringe, right? We, gosh, that's really evil. It also doesn't mean that we don't do good things according to our standard of good. Right? We, we use this phrase, good people. Man, he's good people. They're good people. What do we mean by that? By and large, compared to most of humanity, they're pretty good. They seem to choose what is good more than what they seem to than choosing what is wrong. And so we have a standard of what is good, and what we mean by that is better than most. And so we refer to people as being good people. Right? I talk about my granny like that. It's hard for me. I have a granny who's a believer, been a believer for like seven decades. It's hard for me to see sin in her life. She's good, right? Good. As long as I've known her, I can't remember her displaying any acts of evil, right? But here's what I know is true. Even inside the heart of my granny, inherently she was born with a sin nature. And, 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 the, and, and I'm starting to learn stories about when she was younger, and I'm like, no, it couldn't be. No way, not my granny. Yeah, yeah it's true. Here's what it does mean. It means that we are born bent towards sin. We are. We're bent, born bent towards sin. It also means that we're born prone to wonder. That even though we know what is good and what is evil, we're prone to wonder towards what is evil. It means that, not only that, we are hardwired to hide our sins when we feel shame. Can we be honest about that? Every person in this room, on some level, has experienced hiding. Now, we're different, though. We do it different ways. My wife, bless her heart, has one of the most... Uh, fragile consciences of any person I've ever met. I mean, she confesses things that, that, she, that she doesn't even know if they're sin or not. Just I just need to get this off my chest, right? I'm more like the five-year-old version of me. I like to hide things for a while and think about it before I own it, okay? We're, on different levels, though, we're all prone to hide when we feel shame. Hide, cover it. 
It also means this. We're equally hardwired to attempt to justify ourselves once we're caught. To downplay our actions. Say, well, it's because so-and-so did this, or so-and-so asked me to do this, or so-and-so led me to do this. And we're prone to make it look, try to look, make it look worse than it actually is. If you're taking notes with us today, here's what the next fill-in-the-blank says. Sin and death entered the world through the disobedience of Adam. And this is what happened with Adam, exchanging the image of God for the image of betrayal. And this is where rubber meets the road. Each one of us has followed suit with him on some level. Some of us have participated in sins that are hard to see. And so we're, we've become pretty good at hiding our stuff. And so we've, we've, we've learned how to pull up the veneer so that when people look at us, they say, like I say about my dear old granny, oh, you're good people. But on the inside, we know the truth, right? We struggle with temptation. We struggle with being bent towards wrong thoughts and wrong heart attitudes and, and sometimes wrong actions. But, but for those who are in this category, the sins are easier to hide. Okay? Some of us, however, fall, though, in a way that it's not so easy to hide. The, the bentness towards evil shows up in addictions and shows up and manifests in ways that you can't control your anger. And, and so your, your sins are a lot harder to hide. So some of us don't even try, right? Why even try anymore? But here's the, here's the truth, though. We are all bent towards sin. We are born as descendants of Adam. I want to look at uh, a couple more passages with us with you this morning. Uh, Isaiah 64 helps put things in perspective for me, right? When I compare myself to you, I can kind of work myself up to a place where I'm good, right? But whenever I start comparing myself to God, things begin to derail immediately. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64 starts with who God is before he talks about who we are. And I think the healthiest perspective of who we are is in those moments when we have a clear view of who God is. And so I love how Isaiah 64 starts. As the prophet Isaiah describes who God is, he says in verse 1, To God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. What a magnificent view of who God is. That simply by showing up, he can make the mountains quake. So Isaiah is starting with a real healthy view, first of all, of who God is. And he goes on to say, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. So Isaiah starts with an accurate view of who God is. When God shows up, just his presence can make the mountains quake, can set things on fire and reveal to his adversaries who he is. He doesn't have to say anything. This grandeur, magnificent view of who God is. What he says in verse 4. Let's start with 3. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. Verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you. Nobody else gets to fill your shoes. Who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold... You were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, look at this verse, in our sins, we have been a long time. What is Isaiah thinking about? All the way back to Genesis 3. A clear view of who you are, God. You show up, and the earth quakes, and the people tremble. That's how holy and set apart you are, God. Us, we're sinful, and we've been broken for a long time long time, all the way back to Genesis 3. He ends verse 5 with this question, and shall we be saved? What is he saying? Is there anything you can do to fix us? Look at verse 6, some more clarity on who we are. We all have become, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, this is the best we have to offer you, God. 
the best of the best among us. Bring me the holiest person here on earth and bring me his best deeds. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or a filthy rag, depending on what translation you're reading from. The best we have to offer compared to who you are, God, is filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. What we read about in the garden in Genesis 3, God, we are all just like Adam. And our best efforts to impress you and earn your favor and, 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 and our best attempts to be perfect and holy are like filthy rags compared to who you are. We compare ourselves to one another, God, and we can climb to the top of the ladder, right? I'll show you a good man. I'll show you a good woman. But compared to you, God, we got nothing. Now, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 speaks of this very thing. He's actually going through his list of accomplishments here on earth, okay? Paul was a stud. He really was. Like, like in our, I mean, he, 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 he achieved the highest levels of education and morality. His work ethic was impeccable. I mean, we're talking top of the class, Harvard grad, holy, moral, good man. And he just got through in the first six verses of Philippians 3, laying it all there out there, all of his accomplishments, all the reasons why, from human terms, you should look at him and go, ha ha, good job. I want to be like you. I want my kids to be like you. And look at what he says in verse 7 in a moment of honesty. He says, but whatever gain I had from all that stuff, Whatever gain it got me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. All my morality, all my achievements, all my accolades, all that I did to impress you, I count as loss compared to Christ. And then look what he goes on to say in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, such an important phrase, is Paul saying that it's not good to, um, to work hard in life? No, it has worth. Is he saying that it's not good to get an education and, and be the top of your class? No, that has worth and value. What he's talking about is something that has surpassing worth. Surpassing worth, far above any worth you can place in your earthly accomplishments. He says, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. The literal translation is either garbage or dung or manure. Take your pick. Paul is saying the best that I had to offer in this world, just like Isaiah, are filthy rags compared to who God is. And he goes on to finish here. Not only that, in order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I don't want to stack up my moral achievements and try to climb up on top of those and, get my, and find my way to, to heaven. It's not going to work. So I'm not counting on a righteousness that comes from my own, but that that comes, which comes through faith in Christ. I'm talking about the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And what Paul is talking about is when we believe, God extends to us his righteousness. Now think about that. Is it wrong to pursue godliness and holiness and righteousness and morality? Not at all. Go for it. Not in an attempt to earn God's favor or impress him, but because, because he has accepted you as you are. And so Paul says, you know what? I count it as rubbish. If you're taking notes, you get to decide what word to put in this next blank. Isaiah said filthy rags or polluted garments. Paul said manure or garbage. The righteous deeds of man are like, and you fill in the blank, in comparison to the holiness and the righteousness of God. We're talking about a, a surpassing standard. We're talking about what God calls very good, not what I call good. And compared to that, my best efforts fall short. There's one last point I want to make here because now we get to go back to the good news. And I don't believe if we, fully if we don't fully understand the bad news, then we don't fully appreciate the good news. And the magnitude of what God 
of the extents that God has gone to to fix what's broken in us should tell us something about the magnitude of what's broken. So we were in Romans 5 a minute ago in verse 12. We're going to back up a few verses and read a few more words from Paul. This starts in verse 6 of Romans 5. Paul writes, For while we were still weak in that broken state, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't, he didn't die for those who were godly on their own. He died for those of us who are not godly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would. Let me start over again. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So what Paul is saying, it's not out of the question that somebody might die for somebody else, right? I mean, many men and women in this room would die for your children, die for somebody you love, somebody who has worth to you. But the picture that's being painted here is different from that. What Paul wants us to see is that Christ actually died for people who didn't love him, for his enemies. For those of us who were in rebellion, Christ died. Then he goes on to say this. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. When you see the word blood, that's supposed to grip you. Nothing about that is supposed to be soft and poetic and, right? That's supposed to grab your attention and go, whoa, that's a big deal. Blood? Absolutely. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death, by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And really, this chapter ends with, with this notion. The magnitude of what went, went wrong with Adam, sin and death entered the world through what happened in Genesis 3. And what Paul's going to say is in, the, in, in a, in a um, proportionate magnitude, we find God's rescue. And when we look at the rescue of God, that it, it cost him suffering and it cost him even death and humility, all that Christ went for on our behalf is to show us how big of a deal our brokenness actually is. When we see God's Son going to the cross on our behalf, there should be something in us going, well, no, don't go, don't go. Well, that's, right? Something within us should say, no, 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 that's mine. I should be there. And Christ says, you're absolutely right. But in order to fix this thing, I have to go and down your behalf. This is a big deal. It's a desperate situation you're in. The magnitude of the rescue of Jesus reveals the magnitude of the desperate condition of man's sin nature. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Romans 3, we read these words. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed or manifest apart from the law. Because we tried it by the law and we couldn't make it. Apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the righteousness that we get. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we've got to talk about the bad news to fully understand and appreciate the good news, don't we? And while on some level, I think we would all agree there's something broken about the world, right? Something, something broken. And if we're not careful, we'll do like Adam did, and we'll try to hide what's broken in us. And we'll see all the problems of the world as somebody else's fault, right? We'll see those as, as a result of whatever, whatever excuse, whatever blame shifting we can do, and we won't ever fully step up in full transparency, like David finally did, and say, you know what, God, let me own my part in this. I'm broken, and I'm bent towards sin deep down, and I need a rescue. So if you're, if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, we want you to know that's the essence of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. That Jesus has come to rescue us from our desperate situation, to fix in us what we can't fix ourselves. There's no 12-step program, no workout program, no healthy eating program, no diet you can get on, no medicine you can take to fix what's broken at this level. We need God to do a work deep inside of us.
to begin restoring those things in us that are broken. I want to I pray for us this morning. And um, I want to pray for those who are Christians here today, that today would be a beautiful, just a reawakening and stirring of gratitude and thankfulness. That we would all remember and appreciate this amazing work that God has done in our lives to, to, to truly rescue us from ourselves. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to pray for you that today would be the day that you by faith would come to God. And I don't know what's going on in your heart. I can't, I don't even really need to know what sins are in your life. That's not the point. The point is that you would bring whatever it is, your shame, your guilt, your sin, before a holy God in faith and lay it down. And God promises that when you do that, he exchanges with you. He takes your sin and he gives you a righteousness, free from shame, free from guilt. That's the point of the cross. Jesus took our place. So I'm going to pray for you that today you would be overwhelmed by the love of God. Overwhelmed to the point that you have no other option but to turn to him. And I know that you've probably walked down some hard roads and the idea that somebody loves you unconditionally is probably a foreign concept. Most people in your life have loved you conditionally. You perform well, I love you, right? You, you do what I want you to do, I'll love you. And what you're hearing today is, is a love that's unconditional. It's God saying, I actually know who you are. I can see past the veneer. I can see past the fig leaves. I see where you're at. And I want you to know that I see where you're at, and I still love you. And that is the overwhelming love of a God, the God of the universe, the God who created Adam and Eve, and the God who's here today to rescue us from our sins. Let me pray for us now, and the worship team will come back up. Let's, uh, let's bow together, and, and I want you to know, too, um, our prayer partners will be available in the room. If you'd like for somebody to pray with you or talk with you, they're here for you. Um, if you want to come down and kneel at the front, feel free to do that. We have prayer and counseling rooms that are open. Just if you want to take some time and go in one of those, you may. Let's get still before the Lord. Prepare to respond. Father, this morning, as we began the sermon, our hearts were heavy. God, we were forced to face the reality that there's something wrong with our world. God, a reality that none of us can deny, but most of us like to try to put out of our mind. And God, as we continue to talk this morning, we began to realize that each one of us, in our own way, has participated in that brokenness. And so when we see brokenness displayed in vivid events of evil, it reminds us of those small events of evil that, that we harbor in our own hearts. Our own selfishness, God, our own self-centeredness. But God, we're so thankful that as we continue to talk this morning, you, you revealed to us that you're a God who sees what is true and loves us anyways. So God, this morning I pray you would overwhelm us with your love. I pray your spirit would wash over this room with an undeniable, unconditional love. For those of us who know you, I pray our hearts would be stirred to worship. And God, for anybody here who doesn't know you on that level, that today would be the day of the rescue, that they would come to you and bring brokenness and honesty and, 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 and choose to no longer hide, but to bring it out in transparency and say, God, this is where I'm broken. And God, you might touch and heal and save. So, Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would move among us now as we stand to sing and respond to your word. We pray in Jesus.